Welcome to Write Good, the only podcast that helps you write good. I'm R.S. Benedict. You okay there? <laughs> yes, I'm okay. Hello. Hello. I'm J.R. Bolt. This is J.R. Bolt, who appears to have fallen down a flight of stairs. <laughs> I'm uh, still falling. The... It keeps happening. It's still falling. Just still going. Uh, so... Everybody loves a winner, either a hyper-competent alpha male who always saves the day, or a relatable underdog who beats the odds and comes out on top. But in this episode of Right Good, we're paying tribute to literary losers, fuck-ups, and failures. Joining me is J.R. Bolt, resident Canadian. The failure guy. The, the loser and fuck-up expert. Thank you. Yes. Yes. From the loser country. I'm sorry. That's right. I'm gonna dunk on Canada. <laughs> America's toque. America's Duke. <laughs> All right, so let's start by talking a little bit about aspirational characters. Aspirational characters are extremely common in genre fiction, especially in pulp. Classic sci-fi has a lot of competence porn, as crime fiction is full of it, from criminals to detectives. I did want to have a little aside. One often cited film as an example that people give of, oh, we love movies about people who are competent and smart, is The Thing. It's not. The men in the thing are fucking idiots. You just think they're smart because they're dumb in a way that you're dumb. <laughs> like, it makes me crazy when people go, what I love about the thing is that the guys are smart. No, they're not. It's a huge plot point that everybody's stressed out and tired and confused. These guys fuck up constantly. Okay, first of all, they should not have let a strange dog onto their base without quarantining it. Obviously, they would not expect it to be a shape-shifting alien, but it could be like a test subject from a bioweapons lab carrying, like, super smallpox or something like that. It could have had a disease. So they should not have just let it wander around the base unmonitored and then stored it with the other dogs. They probably should have quarantined it for a little while to see what happens. Number two. When they find a frozen mutant corpse, they drag it into their own base and handle it without proper PPE. Like, the one dude is wearing gloves, sticking his hands into this horrible mutant corpse. He's not even, like, wearing a mask. Like, this guy is handling an obviously scary mutant corpse with less care than the way that I handled my groceries during the first couple of months of the pandemic. It is ridiculous. The first failure that they had in that movie was that nobody was Norwegian, so they didn't know what the guy was screaming because he was Norwegian. Right. And then they right. and then he died. So They're all they're all monolingual Americans. Always a bad sign. Yeah, Always huge a bad failure. Time. Failure. But going back to the beginning, like it's probably worth trying to define what failure is in a in a narrative sense. It's just it's really yes. simple. It's just like when a character has a goal and they do not achieve it. Yes. That's it's very simple and it's it's very very broad. It's useful to consider especially in sci-fi fantasy which is typically the opposite. You always have to have, you know, not always, I don't want to generalize, but in a lot of, you know, the mainstream sci-fi and fantasy, you have a character that has a goal and then at the end they achieve it. And that's kind of, you know, the arc of everything. Yes. And the thing, you know, as a horror film, essentially, as much as a sci-fi film, their goal is to survive and they do not achieve that goal. And a lot yeah. of small stacked up failures lead them along that way. And even the smart things that they do end up in failure, which is also a really interesting thing to consider because you can do the smart thing and you can do everything right and you still fuck it up. Yes. Yes, I love that. I, I, I absolutely love that. And I think 
I have to wonder if part of the reason we want to see competent people do good things and get rewarded is because this sort of just world fallacy thing, it, it strikes me as being kind of similar to wanting virtuous characters, wanting mm-hmm. rational and competent characters. Because it's like, we want people to survive who deserve to survive. We want people to win who, quote unquote, deserve to win. And if... And Absolutely. I, I kind of think like logic and competence is sort of a secular version of virtuousness, of, of being moral, where it's it's a type of morality, but it's a more modern type of morality as compared to like being a good Christian or, or you know, sticking to your principles or something like that. It kind of strikes me as being a bit of a parallel to it. So, yeah, that's a good point. So we demand these like... I want to see people who act rationally and I want to see people who do the right thing and and survive. It kind of seems like wanting the person who's the good Christian to win because they're good. And we know in real life that's not how it happens a lot of the time. We yeah, know. absolutely. Like we do live in a, in a meritocratic supposedly society or a technocratic <laughs> yeah. society where, where competence and skill are, are equated with virtue, of course. Right. And, and that bleeds sort of uncritically – down into into tons of fiction not not to single out sci-fi fantasy but in pretty yeah. much every story that that our culture tells itself right i mean we have superhero stories you cited conan and also stories of social mobility as yeah. well a lot of novels will begin with uh you know the the person down on their luck the farm boy the uh, the impoverished you know slum dwellers or something and a lot of times, by the end of the story, you will have someone who's succeeded in a material way. They've achieved the, the job that they want. You know, they have the uh, the material support network they want. They're in a position of power by the end. Uh, that happens a lot. And there's nothing wrong with that per se. But as a, as a default, it's, it's interesting. Because these things are, these things go back to what you were saying, where uh, fiction is treated kind of like a, as a guideline for morality and, and a guideline for living. So we want to see things that reflect our aspirations. This sort of social mobility story generally starts with, it's called the Bildungsroman. Uh, and that's the, the German term for it, like a novel of growth, uh, a story of, you know, a child who goes to adulthood and the, the story of their life, usually almost always with, with a sense of progress and with a sense of material achievement and uh, moral refinement, of course. And that lies very heavily over so many stories to this day and anyone who's taken like a english 101 course knows that but you know a lot of people haven't and uh you know i had to i had to learn that in my adult life too so right. and it reflects you know material aspirations we want to be wealthy we want to be competent we want to be attractive we want to be you know uh respected and have some kind of power at least over our own lives right Right. And a lot of these are reflected in aspirational characters, characters that we would aspire to be, but they're they're better than us. We we wish we were like them, but they're better than us. Yeah. <laughs> and that's that's a huge like you you can't even list all the characters. I mean, yeah. It's just it's sort of a it's it's a presumed default that a character, especially in sci-fi fantasy, will have some trait that you wish you had. Yeah. Or, or even if it's just wit. Uh, the ability to be snarky at somebody and, and have no repercussions. It's, there's, yeah. There is some kind of wish fulfillment. And, you know, like in my own work, there's certainly that. And in a lot of people, 
you know, it's enjoyable to read about. And there's no there's no slight on wanting that necessarily. Yeah. So we have aspirational characters. We also might have a triumphant, relatable character. So you relate to them. Maybe they're not the greatest person in the world, but maybe you relate to them anyway, and they still kind of win. A yeah, sort of sympathetic flaws. Yeah, sympathetic flaws. Although a lot of the times, it's more of a cleaned up version of your flaws. <laughs> It's still yes. kind of how you want to see yourself, not necessarily what a fucking mess you actually are. You piece of shit. <laughs> well, the real genre that allows fuck-ups to succeed, like relatable fuck-ups, is comedy. Yes. Uh, almost every comedy that you see has a, a character who who is, you know, they're exaggerated. They're often, like, very poor social skills. They have anger management problems. They fly off the handle. They're ridiculous people, right? But generally... In a, in a narrative movie, especially like a, you know, a three act movie, a Hollywood movie, you will have that character, you know, start from the bottom and still achieve some major goal by the end, whether it's like, you know, winning a sports championship or, you know, showing up the stuffy Dean in a, right. in a frat boy type Getting thing. Getting the girl. Getting the girl. Yeah, all that stuff. Right. So that's, that's a form of competence porn too. I don't know. A competence porn is such a specific thing, but it's definitely yeah. aspirational in a way. Right, right. And at any rate, it's a winner, even if the person is portrayed as kind of a downtrodden loser, he oh, ends up being a winner. Yeah, the, the the entire appeal is like, it's much like a romance. It's like, how do these two dissimilar people come together? Like the, the start of a comedy like that would be like, how does this loser become something more? Because they seem to have nothing at the beginning. Right. Right. And I'm not trying to drag those stories. I'm, no, I, mean, I, I, I enjoy I, I them. I like those stories. They're fun. I like stories about smart people doing cool, smart guy things. Uh, oh, I do. I also, I also like stories about slobs who, who manage to make it, you know. We're not trashing them. We're not telling you nope. that you're, you're bad or basic for liking these things. But today we want to focus on stories and character types who don't fall into that. And we want to talk about sad, pathetic fucking losers and fuck-ups. Uh, who, who are kind of a less popular sort of character, less popular sort of narrative. And some people even get angry when they see stories about him, or like object to it, or just find it really, really offensive. I wrote and published a novelette some years ago called The Fairy Egg, and I'll, I'll spoil a part of it, but it's about a woman Excellent who's... Excellent story, by the way. Sorry. Thank you. Thank you for, very much. But, I loved uh, it. I did. Thanks. But a lot of it's about a woman who's trying to, like, better herself and kind of drag herself out of a, a low position, and she doesn't succeed. And she's like, it's not her fault. She's she's smart as hell. She's really driven. She's, like, really, really sharp. She's working super hard. It's just circumstances are against it. And, like, a, a good number of my beta readers were really upset about that. They were really, really mad that she didn't manage to, like girl boss her way to the top and also i think in my or what is it all of me people were really mm. upset because the main character doesn't like triumph so much as she walks away right and they were like they saw it as a failure they saw it as like a downer ending and i actually saw it as like a happy ending or a liberating ending <laughs> but, absolutely well walking away is as a huge triumph in this situation right yeah in, in a situation in which just there's systematic abuse in every level exactly. just walking away from it and returning to the ocean for her i saw as a triumph for i think a lot of people wanted her to like win and be the queen of hollywood or something and i'm like no yeah. this is her saying like this entire town is fucking disgusting i'm done i'm i'm out i'm i'm returning to the sea absolutely i'm finished 
And I think like a lot of, you know, a steady diet of these aspirational stories will train you to expect that. Like when you read the fairy egg, you read about the girl at the beginning and, and she's in her trailer and she's with that abusive man and, and you expect things to go a certain way and you want things to go a certain way. And if you, if you don't consume enough stuff outside of that specific like story style, you're going to just, you're going to be disappointed with, with anything else. You're going, to, yeah. you're going to see it as a default and you're not going to be able to maybe handle something that doesn't end how you want. Yeah, and I'd like to stress about that story. It's based on a real incident that happened in 19th century Ireland. Absolutely. And unfortunately, the, the real Bridget Cleary did not manage to girl boss her way out of a bad marriage. It's It ended real bad for her, is, mm. is what I'll say, which is why I had the story end that way. Yeah, I mean, that's a story that should be told. Yeah. In, in its honesty, right? We want to believe that just being smart and hardworking is enough to help you escape. But for the, I'm not saying this to to create a sense of learned helplessness because there is such a thing as self sabotage. And yeah, there are people mm -hmm. whose bad attitude kind of stops them from from achieving a lot. I don't. So I don't want to say like give up. Everyone should just give up. But sometimes there are people who are resourceful and good and do things right and. It doesn't work out for them and as much as we want it to and that's desperately unfair and that's the way of the world and wanting to believe that that doesn't happen becomes kind of cruel because when we see someone fail this part of us wants to look well well what did she do wrong right, she should have done this right. i i would have done this like not really in this woman's position you probably would have done a lot of most of the same stuff because she had limited choices and these were the choices available to her yeah, and it's always easy to say that, you know, after the fact, like a post-game breakdown, like, that's easy, yeah. right? But in the moment, it's it's obviously not. Yeah, like in horror movies, I used to kind of sneer at the, like, hysterical girl running away from the knife-wielding maniac. I'm like, well, I'd do this. Like, if I'm honest with myself, I probably wouldn't think clearly or str strategically if I was being chased by a crazy man in a mask with a knife. Right. I, I would not think logically. I would totally run up the stairs. In you know, retrospect, you're thinking like, man, I should have gone out the front door. But like your monkey brain takes over and is like, oh, shit, I got to get in a tree. Trees are safe. Stairs are like trees. I'm going up the stairs. Yeah. And in, on a nonfiction level, I mean, you see people doing the same thing with true crime. They'll, they'll read a, you know, these horrible podcasts. They read out, you know, something horrible that happened. And then there's kind of mocking along at the end. Oh, I would have done this differently. Yeah, no, you probably wouldn't have. I wouldn't have picked up that hitchhiker. Well, in the 70s. Yeah, you probably would have. Yeah, you probably would. He probably and would have. He, it was normal back then. He was hot. I wouldn't have helped Ted Bundy. I wouldn't have helped him. I don't know. I probably would have. Hot guy trying to talk to me. Yeah, I'll do what you tell me to. Yeah, and a lot of people want to, you know, they want to position themselves over the uh, the failing character in a story or in a true crime even or a nonfiction story and bring their, their intellectual weight to bear on this like thing that happened. But that's just like a psychological defense mechanism against perceiving yourself as a failure yeah it is and like if we're honest with ourselves we're all fucking idiots a lot of exactly. the time <laughs> we're all complete fucking idiots we all do self-destructive stupid shit yeah and i think we should embrace it at least in fiction yeah and that's kind of why we're here yeah and if you find a character who does stupid shit or who does self-destructive shit unlovable like, how do you find yourself? Because I guarantee you do stupid shit that you shouldn't. You you stay up too late, and then your next day you're like, oh, fuck, I'm tired. Why did I do this to myself? But then you still do it. Every, everyone. Everyone listening to this, everyone who's ever lived. Yeah, you go, oh, damn, I wish I was thinner. And then, like, you eat some cookies for breakfast. 
I'm always staying up late. That's the least of my problems. But yeah, we're all fuck ups. And I don't think that's reflected quite enough, especially in popular fiction, which is why yeah. I've been distanced from it for so long. Yeah. And it's also worthwhile, I think, if you want to talk about morality, if you want to talk about fiction as supposing to teach virtues. Well, yeah, we have role models in, in aspirational characters, but I think it might also be worth having an object lesson, too. Like a oh, yeah. person who you point at and go, yeah, don't be like that guy. That's that's worthwhile in fiction, too, if you're Absolutely. exploring moral narratives. I mean, that's the the ultimate sort of moral narratives were the uh, the, the William Hogarth, you know, the, the plates, the a rake's progress and stuff like that. You know, the, they depicted a loser, a dissolute person who would just commit a new mistake on every single page and they would get worse and worse until they were dead. And that was the story. The point of the story was like just a demonstration of what not to do, like a goofus and gallant type of, type of thing. Right. That's that's the lowest level of that kind of story, really. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But slightly higher, I mean, we have the Greek tragedies, which are all about the, the evils of hubris and hamashia. Yes. The, the Hamarsha, the, the fatal flaw, the one thing that ends up undoing everything that you wanted, right? Right. Uh, the Greeks, you know, they defined that word for sure. They, probably, they didn't invent, you know, tragic stories, but uh, they refined it to the first art, really. Yeah. And obviously their ideas of morality, their ideas of virtue are very different from ours, but a lot of this was about the virtues of that culture and what happens when you try to violate the virtues of that culture. So many Greek tragedies are about people trying to escape their fates. And in that culture, you couldn't do that. That was foolish. You, you were supposed to just sort of meet your fate with quiet dignity and, and, you know, handle it honorably instead of trying to weasel out of it. So constantly in these plays, we're seeing people try to weasel out of their fate and ending up fucked up real bad. Just failing, just failing absolutely miserably. Yep, and that was their entertainment. And, you know, they, they had illustrative lessons, you know. Oedipus has some very good lessons for our lives. <laughs> yeah, of course. Relevant to all of us. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> or there's the Elizabethan tragic hero. Once again, our, our hero has a fatal flaw that ends up completely undoing him. Yeah, the Elizabethan, the, the Jacobian tragedies. The, uh, all of you know Shakespeare's tragedies, of course, they're they're about having a fatal flaw. Right. Stories about failures. I mean, maybe they're a little bit of a bummer, but but they're incredibly beautiful. I mean, what is Macbeth except a huge fucking failure? He's a massive fuck up. My dude, you fucked up. The trees are mad at you now. <laughs> Incidentally, I love Kurosawa's take on the ending. I I kind of like his ending better. Like instead of oh, a yeah, duel, throne of blood, right? Yeah. yeah, throne of blood rocks. Like instead of instead of just like, oh, you know, duel with some Macduff who's like this fucking nothing character who gives a shit about him. Just no, no arrowed several yeah. hundred arrows, <laughs> approximately whole, like a thousand arrows directly all the, in your face. The woods of Dunsinane coming at you at once. I love it. I, I get <laughs> why. I mean, I, I know that, like, Macbeth is a history play, and I'm sure that Shakespeare, whose plays at the Globe Theater were performed in front of members of the royal family, probably couldn't put an ending that featured a mutiny uh, no, against probably not a lot a, of a arrows peasants against shot the there. false king. Uh, <laughs> that probably would not have gone over well. Um, but God, I love the ending of Throne of Blood, where his men just look outside, see that the forest itself is moving against them, and just... 
start just start don't <laughs> don't even argue don't even say anything they just start shooting arrows at him all on mass yep and his fear yeah. in that movie i think that was real because those are real arrows flying at him oh, fuck that is crazy <laughs> <laughs> toshiro mifune great actor but he wasn't acting <laughs> yeah just the way he mugs in that movie is incredible it's so fucking good <laughs> anyway they're on a blood go see it it's, it's so- good yeah, like you were saying about bummer endings, they're not really, you know, they don't have to be bummers necessarily. They can be cathartic in themselves. Like a, yeah. a glorious failure, a glorious uh, <laughs> a glorious flame out can be very, very satisfying narratively. Yeah, or watching a total douchebag fail is pretty fun too. <laughs> yeah. Or even someone who doesn't deserve it because, you know, you've been there. And you yeah. Could, you're like, yeah, it do be like that sometimes. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's also worth telling stories about people who fail, even through their own fault, too. Not not just because of circumstances around them, but you've undone yourself because, God, we've all been there, too. Yeah, all... and we all, we all have fatal flaws. Hopefully oh, not God. fatal, but we do have Probably significant Significant ones. flaws that we, we get in our own way sometimes. It's yep. human. And here's something that bugs me. There's a lot of talk in fiction uh, in mainstream culture about trauma we love stories that are about trauma we love stories about trauma and confronting trauma and overcoming trauma but we don't want to seem to want to confront that trauma can make you a huge fuck up sometimes even if you do go to therapy absolutely like it that can make is you an uncomfortable thing fucking mess massive fucking mess yeah, like litfic will approach this and uh, horror will approach this, but in sci-fi fantasy, not so much. It, uh, yeah. Well, my my go-to like for this, uh, the first thing example that comes to mind is Joe Abercrombie is a first law trilogy. There are people who have been damaged in terrible ways, and it does reflect like they turn into antisocial pieces of shit because of their circumstances, and it's really it's really good in that way, like psychologically. It's a it's very accurate to the feeling of you know being in pain and being resentful and all kinds of things that uh, you know thoughts that uh, that you kind of don't want to express in in other books and, and in other genres I guess yeah but it feels very real and and their their repeated failures and their digging themselves a grave is uh, I'm not you know for my part I wouldn't call it relatable because they're quite extreme but the emotion is there right right so moving on from that. Uh- why we love fuck-ups and losers, why we love failure in art. Let's talk about some of our favorite works about fuck-ups and losers and failures. Let's talk about some of our favorite losers in in literature and to a lesser extent cinema. We want to focus on literature though, just because this is a writing podcast and we can't talk too much about movies. So I'm going to start with a T.S. Eliot poem, The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock. Hmm. I mean, oh my god. It's an amazing poem. It's beautiful. It's it's sad. And I, I think about it uh, more. I, I didn't connect to it much as a teenager in high school. But um, as you get older, you start connecting with that poem a little <laughs> bit more. I'm, I'm sorry to say. I've not read it, but. Oh, my God. It's, I it's do think beautiful. It's, I believe it's it. It's about I... being a lonely old man who's sad and horny. Uh, it do be like that, though. It, it do be <laughs> like that. And realizing, like, your peak is gone and your peak was not that high either. <laughs> like you're, hey, you had that. one little good. chance at greatness, and it's fucking done. And you're just here now. You're still around. You're like, okay. It is curious they'd make high school kids read that. I kind of get the idea that uh, 
you know, some people wouldn't wouldn't relate to that when you're 15 yeah. or whatever. But I mean, I, th- I think it is good to make kids read stuff that they won't necessarily relate to at that age, but might return to. Because like, this is true. If if no one had made me read this poem in high school, I probably wouldn't have read it. That's a good point. If no one made me read like the Scarlet Letter, I would not have chosen to read the Scarlet Letter. That's true. Or or me with the Crucible, and you know, our, our high school yeah. curriculum was pretty good that way. Yeah, yeah. I would not have probably wouldn't have chosen to read the Great Great Gatsby as a teen. I didn't relate to that either. But then when I reread the book around when I turned thirty, I went like, "Oh, holy fuck! Shit! Jesus! Oh God!" <laughs> It really fucking hit, which is another story of failure. I think An- another great novel about failure. Or, or our man Gatsby gets rich to like get the attention of this chick who sucks, and he <laughs> dies for her. And then only like three people go to his funeral at the end. <laughs> that's a that's a good way to put it. It's true. I mean, that's that's a, that is what happened. So yeah. I, you know, the point of Catcher in the Rye and the point of these books is like, it's not the success of the character. It's it, They're not meant to be aspirational figures, which is... Oh, Catcher in the Rye. I will defend Catcher in the Rye to the death. It, it is unfairly maligned. I think it's a brilliant novel about what we would call toxic masculinity and rape culture. It's just, it doesn't use those words, but that's 100% what it's about. It's about a, a, a boy on the cusp of manhood trying to figure out how to be a man. And he doesn't want to be a man because being a man in like 1940s America means being a fucking dick. And like right. being really – being shitty to women mainly. Like he's surrounded by these alpha males who are constantly like kind of treating women like trash. And he knows I don't want to be that way but he doesn't know an alternative like mode of manhood or masculinity – and so he's going around trying to find out, like, what do I do? How do I navigate sexuality without, like, being a part of rape culture? Again, he doesn't use those words, obviously, because yeah. he's, he, he's, you know, not present day. Or how do I handle masculinity without being, like, a douchebag? The one potential, like, way out that he finds who's this one English teacher ends up possibly trying to molest him. Yeah. Like the one dude who seems like he might present a way out and is like nice to him and is like cool and relatable. Maybe it it's ambiguous because we're never really sure is this an attempted grooming or is this a man who's just like kind of traumatized to doing what he seems thinks would be a good idea in a paternal gesture but actually is wildly inappropriate. Yeah. We never like get that 100% like was that fucked up or am I overreacting? Which makes it so much more heartbreaking. So, yeah. like poor Holden, he he never find figures out like what the how how do I become a man without being a piece of shit? And in the end, he just go ends up in a psych ward, and that's it. <laughs> you know, it's still a it's a very good question, and that's one of the things that that makes it so relatable today. But one of the things that uh, this is sort of a sidetrack, but like you say, you know, we use phrases like toxic masculinity and grooming and yeah. other things that that apply so well to that story, and one of the things that's great about literature is being able to at least process these kind of complicated and, and contradictory emotions that we may not have names for until much later. And that's sort of like a good responsibility of a writer is to be able to be honest about you know the, the multi-layering of emotions and, and conflicts like that, just to describe what's going on, even if you don't have the words. Right. And it's it's just great. Like, he describes... 
basically like a date rape before the term date rape was even a concept. Mm-hmm. And it's just by the standards, the social standards of America at the time, it's not technically rape. But like this character is describing it and he goes, I know this isn't okay. I, I know this is fucked up. Mm-hmm. Everyone seems to think it's okay, but I know this is wrong. I, what do I do with this? Yeah. And it's important to like ask those questions. I mean, anything that ends in a uh, question mark is, is something. Yeah. It's important, right? Right. So, yeah, that's my little rant about Catcher in the Rye. It gets unfairly maligned because there are some douchebags who are like, I'm like Holden Caulfield without understanding <laughs> who Holden Caulfield is or what he means. But like, no, legitimately is a really, really sharp book about adolescence and, and manhood. And it, it it's good. It's good. It's a good book. Yeah. And if you read it when you're a teen and you relate to Holden Caulfield, that's that's great. Why not? I mean, yeah, he's a bit like you. Why not? You'll probably grow out of it. I found him annoying and whiny, but I'm like, well, that that just hit too close to home. <laughs> Here's this annoying whiny kid who's always complaining and he just he's just constantly sarcastic and he fucking cusses too much. Like, oh, yeah, that's that's a teenager. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Catcher in the Rye, um, you mentioned Ignatius J. Riley from Confederacy of Dunces. Oh, my God, that book's incredible. That yeah, book's amazing because a... reading that guy, it's like, oh, I didn't know that type of guy existed before the internet. <laughs> yeah, he's just the loser who thinks of himself as like a Diogenes figure. But he just he thinks, sucks. He just he's sucks. so fucking funny. And if he ever like finds like an insight, it's always by accident. <laughs> It's just a total and piece of those shit. Those people are out there. I mean, so we all have our Ignatius J. Riley moments every time we, we like try to boost through it. Oh, God. that <laughs> I'm a piece of shit, but I believe I'm better than everybody else. Like, oh, Absolutely. no. Oh, no. And I think it's relatable to a lot of people. I mean, that's a defense <laughs> mechanism that most of us embrace at one time or another. Yeah, and that's the online, essence of failure, right? On the internet, we're all a little Ignatius J. Riley, at least a little bit. He would have loved Twitter. He would have. He would have been like, so online. He would have been so good at it. God, he would. He would be a fucking influencer. He would thrive. <laughs> We'd he all be wearing those it. stupid hats right now if, it were, he, if would, he was online. He, he would. He would have so many podcasts. He would make like. He would make like fifty thousand dollars a month on Patreon. No question. <laughs> yeah, he's kind of an icon of a, online. But these guys have always existed, right? So yeah. And they're all around us, and and that's one of the reasons they're worth writing about. Like, if you're judgmental, you can call them a loser, but really, they're just kind of normal people. They're they're just not. They don't stand out in any special way, and most of us don't. Yeah. <laughs> so we had uh, Ignatius J. Riley. Something you brought up, even in a story where the good guys win in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, Frodo kind of fails. Yeah, and that's part of Tolkien's master plan, but but Frodo does fail. He can't give up the ring at the end. It, like, he is saved by Gollum biting that off and, you know, biting his finger off and falling into the pit for him. And that's that's a repeating thing in Tolkien, or in Lord of the Rings anyway, but uh, a you catastrophe, which is like, you is like the good side of catastrophe. And it's kind of Tolkien's divine intervention where things will be wildly coincidental, but they'll work out for the best. And, and you see that at the end, of course, with Gollum. And you also see this with Shelob, where it's apparent that he's going to die. Like Frodo's stung and he's going to die, but he gets saved by a complete coincidence. And there's lots of other small things too. 
And some people sort of take it as, you know, uh, divine intervention is this like narrative failing uh, we shouldn't use it or whatever. But Tolkien obviously does, you know, his religious beliefs are part of that. It's a tale of good triumphing over evil in the face of failure, which is mm. which is an interesting, like complicated and complex thing that's like definitely worth discussing. It, it goes like probably deeper than than I want to get into right now. But it is about personal failure and spiritual triumph at the same time. Yeah. And I'm going to point out, even though the good guys defeat Sauron, there's still this incredible sense of loss at the end. Like, the Shire yes. has lost its innocence. Yeah, it's... The, wor it's about the world is changing and magic is dying. Yeah, it's it's about the end of the world in a lot of ways. Their success is... Uh, it's not meaningless, but it, it definitely is the last gasp of something that's destined to, like, fade out. Yeah, it's really tragic and, and a little bit heartbreaking. So even Lord of the Rings and Faramir, I think he never gets over his dad's rejection. No, he never gains his father's acceptance. He and then dies. Never lives up to what his father wants him to be. Well, it would be impossible. Yeah, Tolkien at least his Christian beliefs, you know, are reflected in a billion stories. But yeah, that goes all the way back to Hogarth and and the Rake's Progress. They they were explicitly Christian uh, moral stories about. You know, this is the path of the sinner. Don't go here. Don't do this. Don't fuck up like this or you're fucked. And, you know, Tolkien is not that simplistic, but uh, there's definitely a, a moral sentiment in there for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So as a genre, we talked about horror as a, as a genre of failure. I would propose that a lot of film noir and neo-noir is defined by failure. A really good film noir often often ends in failure. Maybe even even during the Hayes Code era, like when you were legally mandated to to cram a happy ending on there, at the very least, like maybe the your victory is just walking away from the thing, like giving <laughs> up on finding the Maltese Falcon instead of getting it. Yeah, the ability know? to walk away. Or survive yeah. at all. Yeah, or even Nightmare Alley, the the original one, the the remake is the remake. It's weird, like it it's darker and harder, but it doesn't hit as hard somehow. Like the subtlety of the earlier film makes it I work better the new for me. One. Oh, the don't see the new one. The new one sucks. The old one is legit, really, really good. It's really, really oh, fucking I love, good. I love an old film noir. Oh, yeah, it's great. Our, our hero, like, even with the last 15 seconds happy ending slapped on, our hero, our main character goes from being this, like, rich, really cult leader, psychic medium to becoming a circus geek. <laughs> and it's his own fucking fault for being a dick. Yeah, like a lot of classic noir ends as like yeah. as as cruelly and meanly as the Hayes Code would permit. I mean, Scarlet Street has one of the darkest endings that I've seen in any movie, and it's interesting because crime as genre fiction like contains both extreme competence porn and extreme failure. Yeah, because I guess crime in you know as a way of being as a thing you do will also contain that risk, and you know both can coexist at the same time. Which is like going back to competence porn. I mean. Yeah. You have Sherlock, of course. Sherlock Holmes is the ultimate, like, competent detective who never fails, or almost never. You know, you have Michael Mann characters who are icons of, of competence, right? Like, mm -hmm. you know, you have uh, James Caan as the thief. I can't remember his name in the movie, but he's a, he's a master safecracker that everybody wants. And uh, Chris Hemsworth is the hacker in Black Hat. He's the master hacker that's, like, also a master knife fighter. 
Blackhead is good, by the way. I'll go to the bat for that. Especially the new yeah. one. The, the director's cut. Good movie. Good movie. Yeah. But uh, Michael Mann is kind of the archetypal, like, modern competence porn. You go to see those movies for these cool guys in cool outfits with, like, abilities that are uh, almost cartoonishly powerful, like, good, like, great. I'm a great cop. I'm a great safe cracker, blah, blah, blah. And it also contains, like, the seeds of neo-noir where people do, like, die horribly and unfairly and success is not always rewarded and sometimes like in uh, like in collateral the competent person is the villain and to just escape from that situation is the triumph to not not to be the competent person but to get away from them yeah okay so that was movies let's go back to literature because we don't want to talk too much about movies for too long even though I, I fucking love movies and there's we will talk more about movies but one of the oldest recorded stories, the Epic of Gilgamesh. Absolutely. Gilgamesh is a fuck up. He keeps fucking up. He gets his best friend killed. He's a douchebag. He tries to find the secret of immortality and then he fucks up and it, it gets eaten by a snake. He yeah. tries to stay awake to show Utnapishtim that he's serious and he immediately falls asleep for an entire week. Oh, yeah, Gilgamesh fucks up, like, even in other legends that aren't the epic of Gilgamesh. Like, Inanna clowns on him and turns him into a simp. (laughs) (laughs) He builds her a wooden throne based on the the Yggdrasil of Sumer, or whatever the the name for it was. It was the the world tree of Sumer, Sumerian mythology. Good for her. And there's there's a lot of failure and destruction in in Sumerian mythology. And, and of course, in later mythologies, like, anything that Greek mythology is full of it. Of course. Right. And I mean, a lot of the Epic of Gilgamesh is about, like, the sadness of being human and the sadness of being a human in civilization. This this newfangled concept called human civilization. And, like, this weird human condition of, unlike most animals, you have a sense of, you have a sense of your own mortality, but you can't do shit about it. Mm-hmm. You are a spiritual being that will still fucking die and can like choke to death on a chicken wing and has to take a shit. <laughs> like it is a very strange thing to be human and to yeah. have a human consciousness. I mean, in Sumerian mythology, the reasons humans have consciousness at all is because Enkidu got too drunk and in and Inanna and Ninchubar stole the stole the means of consciousness from him. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it so Epic of Gilgamesh, like the first great story is about a fail son, really. <laughs> yeah. A rich fuck up who fails and gets his bro killed. Yep. Oh, and speaking of another important legend about a fuck up fail son, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Yes, absolutely. Our boy our boy's a pussy. Yep. He wears the magic sash. He fucks up. He just decapitating the guy in the first place was a huge fuck up. Like you could have just poked him gently on the nose. You could have booped the Green Knight. Right. And in one Christmas a year from now, he would have come back and booped you gently on the nose, and you would both have a little laugh about that. You were and, the like, guy who took the ale. party game too seriously. You yeah, got you mad just, about you, Pictionary in front of all your friends. Way too fucking hard. <laughs> a guy said like, "Okay, hit me, and I'll hit you back." You decapitate him. Right. What the fuck, dude? I mean, technically, dude. it's within the bounds of the rules, but you kind of overstepped it. Yeah, like, dude, you really... That was too much. Come on. 
which is which is why I love in the adaptation. Like I have mixed feelings about the adaptation, but the the adaptation totally gets like this guy's a fucking idiot. He's a complete fuck up. He's, I really like he, the movie for that he reason. Can't light a fire. He's constantly damp. Everybody's constantly asking him like, why did you do that, dude? He spends about a third of the movie like tied up under a tree. <laughs> yeah, immediately <laughs> getting loses on by all everybody. of his equipment, like Samus Aran at the beginning of every Metroid game. <laughs> Just loses all... He has a great horse, a sword, all this good shit, immediately loses it. Yeah, and that's that's ultimately a narrative of, of you know, he, at least he learns his lesson. And, and in the movie, it's ambiguous whether he dies or not, but it, I don't think he yeah. does. I mean that he he learns a different message, I, I, which I love. It's like the Green Knight is kind of a story about like Christianity's triumph over paganism and nature worship, and I feel like it's a response to that almost. Going like, well, how's that working for you? Yeah. And and I loved that the movie kind of got the vibe of that one like Lord and Lady where he's staying because I'm reading the legend, going like, wait, he's going hunting, and he's giving you half of his hunt, <laughs> and you're at home while his wife tries to fuck you, and he asks you for half of what you got. Like this. It's like, yo, I saw you from is... across the moor. I yeah. kind of like your vibe. Verily, <laughs> we doth diggeth thine vibe. <laughs> the movie absolutely leans into it. It's like, yeah, we we know, we know. Yep. We we gotta acknowledge this. It's good. It's very good. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, even though he survives at the original of the story, like, the court, everybody wears a green sash or something as a little joke on him of, Here, here's when you pussied out, you fucking ridiculous boy. Absolutely. And, and going back to the idea of a character can fail but still represent a spiritual or a philosophical or a moral triumph, right? Right. And, and you have a... Eddard Stark, of course, is like the, the negative version of that where, you know, he's honorable unto death and it, it causes pretty much the collapse of the entire realm. You know, like he fails by being short-sighted and being basically unable to be flexible, right? Mm-hmm. And the positive inverse would be probably China Medieval's Iron Council, where, you know, not to spoil a book too much. Well, it's all spoilers down the road. But, yeah, uh, we're, all, we're spoiling everything right now. <laughs> Yeah, there's a, a rebellious faction, a, a communist incursion called the Perpetual Train, and it's riding into the city to, you know, take it to the fascist government in a, in a glorious blaze of, of destruction. But what happens in the book for a variety of reasons, they get basically trapped in time and frozen as a, as a symbol of the revolution that lasts forever, even though, like, their characters are literally, like, trapped, like, just, like, in this, oh, in this encased sort of, like nowhere world oh, and it, it's, it's both a tr- success and a failure because you know they were riding into guaranteed death at the hands of the fascists but when they're trapped in time they're unable to be destroyed so they remain as this symbol the spiritual success and this this inspiration to you know generations to come maybe infinity to come there's mm-hmm. multiple levels of what failure can mean it doesn't always mean like a bummer or it means like you know yeah. you, you fucked up and, and you're destined to be you know dead it, it, there can be many things, and, that, and that's a, a yeah. Tolkien thing and a, and a China medieval thing. I would argue the movie Francis Ha is about that a little bit. Uh, I'm, I'm going to spoil it, and it's it's very much not a genre fiction type thing, but it's it's about a girl who wants to be a professional dancer in New York City, and she's pursuing this dream. She is pursuing this fucking dream, and it's tearing <laughs> her life apart because she is not fit to be a professional dancer. She doesn't have it. She does not have the juice, but she will not let go of this dream. And it's like, Francis, you should not. No, 
You have to fucking stop. And at the end, she finally gives up on her dream of being a professional dancer. And it's the best possible decision for her. She ends up actually doing really well. She settles down for like a clerical job in the dance company where she's trying to get cast. And, and the lady's like, you know, recognizes, I know you got a lot of heart and a lot of enthusiasm, but you do not have it. Yeah. And she ends up designing choreography instead. And actually, she's really good at it. She's doing great. And her life is going way better. Because hey, she go. gave up on her dream. Yeah, even, even Rocky didn't win the fight. He just, it's a draw at the end. Right. All he did was stand up. I mean, which is a triumph in itself. But, like, that maybe the victory is not the point, as, as that movie points out. Right, right. And then I would say a really good example, I think, in which nobody gets exactly what they want, or everybody kind of does or kind of doesn't, is The Left Hand of Darkness. Hmm. Estraven fucking dies. <laughs> He, he fucking dies. Genli Ai ends up kind of lonely. Uh, nobody really 100% gets exactly things the way they want them to be. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess the, the planet Githen joins the whatever it is, the sort of League of Nations in space thing. But everyone ends up kind of sad and a little bit confused and unfulfilled. Yeah. See. <laughs> and that can be very good. It can be satisfying even. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's a beautiful novel. I love it. Or let's talk maybe not necessarily failure endings, but characters who are losers or just people who are kind of perpetual losers or, or just not triumphant, amazing people. Most of the characters in Slaughterhouse-Five okay. are just... I mean, it's not exactly a story of triumph. It, it's, it's survival, but this is a story about World War II that's remarkable because it doesn't have heroes in it. Mm-hmm. Our main character, Billy Pilgrim, is like a total dork. He's not a cool noble soldier. He's a complete fucking dweeb. He's useless as a warrior. Mm-hmm. He, he sucks. And part of the reason he survives is because the Nazis realize he, th- this guy is not a threat to us. Let's just put him in a POW camp. He's, it's fine. We do not need to worry about this fucking guy. Yeah. The actually competent soldiers get shot to death yeah i have not read that book unfortunately oh it's good but like almost everybody in it is just a complete loser fuck up it's really 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 good it's very good yeah like most of the like i've read a couple of vonnegut i've read player piano and stuff and he doesn't seem interested much in the concept of heroes as it is no Uh, the only hero that i recall from him is harrison bergeron (laughs) (laughs) which is like his libertarian (laughs) fable i guess kind of kind of yeah totally Totally different thing, I guess. Yeah. Although I remember hearing that that one's supposed to be ironic. That would make a lot of sense. Because it's just like totally ridiculous. It's very ridiculous. (laughs) But I guess uh, that's what The Incredibles actually is. So Brad Bird didn't think it was ironic. Yeah. I think Connie and Woman on the Edge of Time might kind of qualify. Her ending is ambiguous we're not sure if what she does made any difference if if she's actually time traveling or if she's just crazy and there's this amazing scene where her friend from the future is like giving her a pep talk about like oh i know you failed in your plan but just try again and connie like loses her shit on her and says no like you don't you don't fucking get it you do not understand what it's like to be actually legitimately oppressed Hmm. Because you live in the happy, vegan, genderqueer future, and I live in, like, shitty 1970s present day. Shut the fuck up, you asshole. (laughs) Shut the fuck up. And it's really, really, really good. Nice. 
Ringu. Oh, yeah, yeah. We could talk about horror as the genre of failure. Oh, I mean, yeah, that's horror as the genre of failure. I mean, we talked about noir a little bit because that's genre uh-huh. fiction too, but like yeah. horror is the, the speculative fiction genre that is all about failure almost, yeah. almost entirely. And what I love about Ringu or The Ring or that whole series, and, and I'm going to maybe make people mad and say I actually liked the American movie of The Ring better than Ringu because... I'm with you. Psych- I agree. Having a psychic character in a mystery is bullshit. You know, I like Hideo Nakata's uh, work, his movies. I think I think that's the director of The Ring, or Ringu, rather. Beautiful, beautiful to look at, uh, very atmospheric, but I do love Gore Verbinski's The Ring a lot better as yeah. a movie. It's, it's a yeah. really harrowing, scary movie. For a, It's the scariest PG-13 movie I've ever seen, at least. Yeah. And, and the part about it that's scariest is, like, they do everything right. They yep. solve the mystery. Yeah. And, and it, it doesn't fucking help. It, doesn't it do does nothing. not do shit. It makes things worse. It makes things... Which I loved. It's so mean. Yep. Like, yeah. And you do but get But it makes this. sense. It's like, oh, we, we gave the, the murder ghost what she wanted. Things <laughs> will be okay now. Like, no, they won't. Yeah, no. The murder ghost was the bad guy. The, you you gave like you... a murder ghost what it wanted. Why, why did you think that would help? Yep. And that's that's one of the things like you get that in a lot of horror or at least a lot of the uh, the better horror is where you know you can do everything right, you can do what you think is right and you can do you can operate at the the maximum of your intelligence and solve the mystery and it was a mystery that was never meant to be solved. That's that's every Lovecraft protagonist. Yeah. Oh, you solved the mystery. You shouldn't have done that, buddy. That was a bad idea. Like success has its costs and uh Lovecraft yeah. warned about that in the first paragraph of Call of Cthulhu, the warning to all the scientists. There's some mysteries that shouldn't be solved. I can't quote the whole thing, yeah. but it's about uh, how the sciences straining in their different directions will one day lead to horrible revelation. Yeah. So in, in success is the failure. Right. And horror right. embraces that for sure. Right. Horror. I mean, we could talk so much about horror, but I had to highlight Ringu because of the very specific type of failure. It's not just, oh, they don't they don't defeat the monster. It's like, oh, it, the way they fail is so mean and unfair. Yep. It's so mean. That's what makes it great. That's what makes it rock. And I've been reading a lot of uh oh, this week I've been watching all the Atomie movies after after reading Junji Ito's manga about it. Ooh. If you don't know Tomie, it's 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 a, a series of stories, twenty chapters, twenty short stories, I guess, about a young woman who is basically I've described her as like a kami of entropy. Uh, she shows up to basically ruin someone's life uh, because she's a beautiful young woman who can't, you know, she can't be killed. Essentially, like men are obsessed with her because she's beautiful and she's she has a magnetic like seductive power like a succubus or a, uh, the magical temptress and they get obsessed with her and oftentimes they kill her or they or she goads them to kill somebody else and she can't be killed permanently she always comes back as like a uh, a John Carpenter's the thing sort of body horror entity mm. uh, like a like a flatworm like you you cut her up and she'll just grow like 10 more copies of herself nice it's a very weighted theme in terms of like dissecting men's misogyny and their their fears of this power this this feminine power over them and what she really does is just create failure in everyone she encounters including herself 
uh, that's why I say like she's a, she's a creature of entropy. She represents ultimate failure in every way because nobody ever wins when Tomie shows up and not even herself. Mm-hmm. And the movies are really good about uh, showing this so far. I've watched, what, five of them now? There's nine of them. They're like It's like the, the Freddy or Jason franchise of Japan, right? Mm-hmm. But one of the reasons it, it, I bring it up and the reason it weighs on me heavily is, is because it is so much explicitly and in text about failure about everybody making the wrong decision at every given time for, like, blackly comic purposes. And it, it is tragic and horrible, but it's also really funny. It's almost like a burlesque of gothic violence, often visited upon women. But, you know, Tomie always has the last laugh because she she's always going to come back and she's always going to make things worse. <laughs> nice. Good for her. She is a girl boss. We love her. Yay. All right. Fuck ups and failures. Ari Aster movies. Absolutely. A lot of failures and losers. Bo is Afraid is about a, a sad fucking loser of a man just having a terrible time. Just having the worst possible time for three hours. We love it. My I haven't gosh. seen that movie yet. It, I have seen it once and that was enough. It was very good. I don't think I could watch it again. An Ari Aster comedy? Time. I mean, that sounds pretty good to me. <laughs> yeah. But I know it's going to be a bad time because that's what he excels in. God bless him. Yeah, he's he's great at bad times. He is incredible at bad times. Nothing fucked me up worse than the first time I saw Hereditary in the theater. No movie felt like it was designed specifically to upset me personally more than Hereditary. Yeah, I mean, it, it's kind of the... Uh the ultimate modern form of uh, at least like that domestic nuclear family horror. And a lot of horror is about the the dissolution of the nuclear family and its failure to bring the happiness that it was supposed to, right? I mean, that was the point of uh, uh, Poltergeist going all the way back to to that. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the times like failure, a failure of a system, of a social system, of a family, of a society. And you see this in, like I just mentioned, Tomie as well. But it's, it's pointedly like failures of systems to protect you. Not just a character's failure, but a societal failure. Mm-hmm. Hereditary does that really well because they're a nuclear family. They have no support. They're like the little dollhouse. They're just like locked in time, like away from everybody else. Oh, yeah. Yeah, God, I love it. And I, and I love just the the anxieties of like, what if you actually can't overcome <laughs> the, your your family issues? What if, what if you can't? Like every... Every woman's terrified of turning into her mother. Yeah, and and horror is good at, uh, you know, expressing that and, and not giving it a bow tied at the end where it's like, oh, you can defeat it. Sometimes you yeah. can't, and sometimes, sometimes you have to carry on anyway. Yeah. Oh my god. Oh my god. Hereditary. Jesus Christ. What scene in Hereditary fucked you up the worst? I have to do a little aside. The head. Oh yeah, that's a good one. But the piano wire was good. That was good. For me, it's when the old lady casts Peter out of his own body. Oh, yeah. Like, that's the scene that upset me the most. He's in school. He looks across the street, and there's this crazy old woman yelling, and she, like, yells some Latin or something at him and points at him and says, I cast you out, Peter. And, like, that was what fucked me up the most, because, like, he just stops... He loses control of his body and and his own soul. And yeah. it's just gone. I like that just... wording too, because I cast you out as like, you know, that's what a priest would say. So it's like To it's a demon. Just, yeah. So yeah. <laughs> the demon saying that to you, it's like, oh, if language has that power and belief has that power, it can be used against you, I guess you're fucked. Apparently the words she uses in 
you know, Latin or whatever languages it is are words that were traditionally used in exorcisms. Yeah. She's just exercising, like, the rightful spirit from the body that it's supposed to belong to. Just like, you're you're gone now, goodbye. Like, well, fuck. You shit. made the sandwich. <laughs> like, you, be, you made the weapon to be used. I mean. Yeah, it's so brutal. It's so brutal. Oh, God. But anyway. Uh. Oh, um, I was going to say, <laughs> related, When Evil Lurks is a... God damn. <laughs> that's a movie about failure. Like Man, want, that like, movie a complete was hard. Exegesis of failure. I think I'm pronouncing and that right. And total fucks up, fuck ups. Just our our guys are complete fuck ups in this movie. I mean, that's what makes it such a harrowing watch. Because like the thing about yeah. horror movies is the you know you have the the characters who are like oh don't go in the basement, don't go blah blah blah, and you you want to tell the characters to act differently, and you're probably justified in doing it. But yeah. the failure in this movie starts at the very top. Like it's a it's a social failure. It's a structural failure. It's a world where demonic possession is already known to be a thing that happens, and the yeah. government and your community can do nothing to stop it or help you at all. Yeah, I love that. The, You're just the, on your own. Like the cops or whatever who are supposed to deal with it, they just don't. Nope. They know it's a problem. They know it's a serious problem, and they're so, just like, yeah. yeah, whatever. We'll get to it eventually. Like what? Yeah, what you, and what? And social failure is such a, a an important concept. I mean, the, the dystopian fiction writ large is, is, you know, social failure, structural failure, infrastructure failure, and a, a mm. person's like struggle through it. So, uh, when evil lurks is kind of a dystopian movie in that regard. Yeah, especially at the end. Jesus. <laughs> it's Jesus so good. Christ. It's a good bad time. It is. It goes hard. A lot of. A lot of very no one gets plot armor in that movie. Nope. No one is safe just because they're you know X. Oh, you're you're disabled. You're a kid. You're an old lady. You'll be fine. No, no, you nope. will not. You might get it worse. You will not be okay. Because in real life, that's what happens when you're vulnerable. You get got, and horror at least tells you that. Oh man, it's bad. It's rough. It is a bad time. That movie. You think they're not gonna show the? Oh, they showed it. They. They straight up showed that happen. They sure did. Yeah, the the entire, like, uh, the moral of when evil lurks is, like, evil will always triumph because good is dumb. It's it's Dark <laughs> Helmet. That's It's just Dark Helmet yelling at you for two hours. Oh, God. Oh, God, it's brutal. Jesus. Good movie, but, yeah, it prepared to be very upset for a very long time. And it's a good example. Oh, and The Wailing, speaking of horror of failure. Damn. Yes. We were talking about that in the Discord in terms of horror movies that were really mean. Oh, yeah, The Wailing. And then there's a there's a small movement of uh, Asian so possession flicks that are like that. The, the Medium is one. Mm -hmm. Incantation is another. They're all kind of similar in that way where they, they, they pose this uh, spiritual crisis that uh, the local religion and faith absolutely fails to deal with. Yeah. Well, there's like no way... A normal person could figure out what they were supposed to do in that situation, at least in The Wailing. I haven't seen those other movies, but it's like there are a bunch of different people telling him what to do and giving him guidance. And like, how the f how the fuck do you know which is the right one? Yeah. You're just some guy. You don't know. I mean, to a Western viewer, of course, like Korean Taoism would be impenetrable. But even to the, you know, the makers and watchers of the movie, it's, it's an arcane thing, much like medieval Catholicism would be to us. We don't know the rules. Yeah. We're going to transgress somehow and we're going to pay the price, right? Yeah, of course. 
It's so brutal. Ugh, it's it's just great. It's such a it's a very good downer movie. It's a very good beautiful movie. movie. I love um, uh, Nahong Jin. It's beautiful. The yes, the writer. I believe he's the writer or the director and or the director of uh, the Wailing. He also did some other crime movies that were really good. Mm-hmm. Also, oh. extremely neo noir pictures of failure. Oh, speaking of Wailing, Moby Dick. Yes, <laughs> Wailing. different kind of Wailing, the wailing. but okay. Didn't. <laughs> just cut that in there or segue segue sam we yeah we they try to catch the whale they do not whale fucking kills the shit out of him yes yeah and the point is not success it's hamarsha that's the the fatal flaw of captain ahab yeah, yeah ahab you you could have been fine you could have hunted normal sized whales you could have let this one go buddy he could have been a cobbler <laughs> <laughs> He only needs one he, shoe, but he can like... Could have been fine. He can make shoes. Could have been fine. Instead, Ishmael's wonderful husband met the briny deep. Yep. Rest in peace, Queequeg. We love you, Queequeg. <laughs> Tattooed cannibal hunk. Don't we all want one? God, yes. My God. I was not prepared for how gay that book actually was. The, well, it's about it's about marriage at the very beginning. Yes. Like, I knew it was going to be a bit homoerotic. But I didn't know it was going to be that homoerotic. <laughs> I did not know how hard it was going to go into it because it, it, it just blows my mind. And it's so funny to me that so many stodgy old traditionalist ac- academics are like, this is the greatest novel of all time. And I'm reading it going like, this is gay as shit. Yeah. This is the gayest shit I've ever read. This fucking rocks. <laughs> Maybe that's why they're saying it. Because you, be ga- <laughs> you can't be the greatest all no- novel of all time without being the gayest novel of all time. It's or so, at least so extremely, extremely gay. gay. It's so good. It's so good. Fucking Queequeg and Ishmael get married in the first 13 chapters. Yeah, and it describes them, you know, hunking down in the bunk. Yeah. With their arms wrapped around each other, you know, normal bro, normal bro stuff. Wrapped in Queequeg's bridegroom's embrace. Which is a very heterosexual thing to say about your friends. And just the way he describes Queequeg's body yeah. all the time. Like, oh, you were thirsting. You, this, is, this is not neutral here. He wants all to right. know the meaning of all those tattoos. <laughs> the bit I loved the most, I think, is just there's a chapter about Chowder and like Ishmael is freaking out because he's afraid that like Chowder won't be hardy enough. For, for his powerful alpha male husband. <laughs> and it's like so touching and beautiful. That's awesome. He's just going like, is chowder enough? My man needs his protein. He needs more protein. You don't understand. (laughs) He's got to maintain his physique. He's got to maintain his physique. He needs like 700 grams of protein a day. He's so strong. (laughs) Chowder's not manly enough. He won't be able to lift me up and cleave me to his bosom if he's not strong. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) We love him. It's beautiful. It's like really, really touching. I find it really sweet. I know like so many of the little downtime chapters, like, oh, why why does this book have an entire chapter about chowder? Like, because it fucking rocks. It's really important. You have to know how to make it out there. You know, as you were saying, like, like, it ends in tragedy. It ends in failure. Oh, another China Mieville book that is a very clear reference to Moby Dick is The Scar. Several powerful characters, not the leads. They're in charge of moving a giant waterborne city, like a like a. It's called Armada. It's like a, a collection of boats that's become like a little city. The leaders of Armada are dragging the city to the place called the Scar, which is like their, you know, metaphorically at least their Moby Dick, their ultimate goals to reach this place called the Scar, which is like a dimensional rift, I guess. 
And, you know, not to spoil it, but we are spoiling it. They never reach it. They never mm-hmm. get there. Uh, they have to give up. You know, it's tragic. It's, it's, the entire novel is like a, at least a parallel and uh, an oblique reference to Moby Dick. And it's all about mm-hmm. failure in the end. Oh, and the first novel of China Medieval, um, Pretty Do Street Station, also failure. Uh, Isaac never never gets to make wings for uh, the Garuda guy. I can't remember his name. But, uh, you know, his entire goal through the thing, it just ends in nothing. And, you know, yeah. you can criticize certain of China Medieval's tics and his, uh, his treatment of female characters, especially, at least in the first book. But mm. he embraces the idea of of a noble failure and, and failure as something that is not just a downer, but uh, satisfying in a psychological way because the characters and the reader can both uh, think around these failures and, and say that there's alternate possibilities, even if you don't get what you want. Yeah. Like it's not the end of the world if you fail unless it is, which it sometimes is. Yeah. <laughs> but in sci-fi fantasy, you know, it doesn't have to be fatal all the time. Sometimes you can yeah. fuck up and you can survive. Yeah, let's see. Oh, I'm just thinking of all all the required English reading. Fucking To Kill a Mockingbird. Oh, yeah. They lose that case. Right. There was no way they were going to win it. It's Mississippi in the 1930s. Oh, yeah, yeah. You're not going to win it. They managed to humiliate the Papa Yule because he's a piece of shit. Now everybody knows it. But they lose that case, man. Yeah, I read that in high school, but I don't recall that much of it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is it Boo Radley? Boo Radley Boo Radley's just like is, the, the witness, like a weird guy, right? He's the shut-in next-door neighbor right, who rescues yes. the children at the end. But he's not the uh, the accused. No, no. no so the black guy. Uh, yeah, that's, it's such, that's it's, Tom. I remember that affected me quite a bit, but I don't recall the details, honestly. Yeah. Yeah, but they lose that case, then there was like no way they were going to fucking win it at that time in that place. Not happening, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, and it's and it's very tragic. Yeah, that's, that's an illustrative sort of failure right it it, it excoriates society for sure i know atticus finch is very much a beloved uh figure for like sort of white liberals so there could be criticism made of the book in that like okay is this just sort of Uh, a white guilt narrative what is that like i don't know maybe but i just imagined something horrible raquel oh no aaron sorkins to kill a mockingbird Oh, uh, no, I just cringed thinking about this. Atticus Finch wins the case with facts <laughs> and logic. And a big American flag drapes behind him. Yeah, as he, he gives wins. like a four-page speech about how good America is for, for like letting this guy off. God damn it. And then Lin-Manuel Miranda comes in at the end to wrap out God the damn plot. It. <laughs> what rhymes with Atticus? God damn it. We'll leave that for the listeners to decide. That's that's upsetting. <laughs> I, I wish you hadn't said that. I'm, I'm mad now that this exists in the abstract. They fucking canceled our, our flag means death. So like, oh, so, you know, Taiki, why, uh, the director can fucking make this happen. He's going to play uh, Atticus Ross. He's going to make it happen. He's going to he's going to have it. He's going to wear his little, like, Hawaiian shirt, like, suit in the courtroom. Yeah, yeah. He's going to do, like, little yeah. Mr. Bean antics. Oh, I did. Oh, oh, oh. Yeah, he's going to portray gonna non-toxic masculinity. That's right. Until he gets canceled, inevitably, because that always happens. We, we, we keep picking, like, random media men and being like, this is the great avatar of non-toxic masculinity. And then within, <laughs> like, three years finding a reason to dislike him and just getting incredibly angry at him forever. Well... If it happens, I won't shed a tear. 
Yeah, I mean, if it happens to that guy, that guy's annoying as shit, so whatever. It's just a weird cycle. Yeah, I mean... It's like it's like some pagan thing, like the... What is it? The, the king for a day ritual, where you just, like, pick a random guy, some, like, random lowborn guy, and put a crown on his head and let him be king for a day, and then you, like, set him on fire when the day is up. I wouldn't be it opposed to It feels kind of like that. That, it, that feels better than our current, like, milkshake duck system, where you just sort of, like, find a find a guy who's trying really hard to seem like he's you know woke and 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 doing the right thing but like in such a patently obvious way that it seems false and you know we've been through this before with uh what the fuck a dozen guys dozens thousands yeah i mean hugo schweitzer there you go if anyone remembers that name that's a throwback for y'all god damn that guy that was from the from the era where people would say y'all yes they still do Older millennials do, still do. That's true. It's upsetting. I am in New York State, and and I, I will occasionally hear a blonde woman say "y'all," and it's. I I'm grateful because it's a very useful red flag. Y'all is very good, you know, but it's culturally located. You know, what, you know what we're talking about. Yeah, if you're, if you're southern, it in the South, if you're it's black, okay. like that's great. Then it's fine. If you're, if you're a white, if woman you're a Yankee, in New York State, do not please. In the New York State capital region. I hear Canadians doing it. Please don't. You can't, Oh, no. No. I should say white Canadians because, of course, there are black Canadians. They're, they're, they can yeah. say whatever they want. Yeah, you can say what you want. But, like, no. but a white Canadian, you've been too online. I'm sorry. I feel like if you're a cowboy, you can do it, too. If you're a cowboy, you can do it. Well, Southern, yes. Yeah. I feel like even if you're, like, a northern horse person, it's kind of okay. <laughs> Northern Canadian horse people are a different breed. I'll tell you that much. I can't, granted, I don't know. I don't know what Canadian horse people are. So yeah, maybe they're terrible. We're very strange. I wouldn't say terrible. Just a, a strange breed. Is it like English style riding there, and like really intensely weird about it that way? Dressed like English riding, yes. Acts like uh-huh. English riding, no. So it's a very weird huh. mashup. Like there's huh. a mix of like Jason Aldean dipshit country, but also like. You wear the the riding helmet and the the little uh, the little vest with the patch on it, like a jockey. Like there's a mix. Oh, there's a mix. A, that's a weird mix. That's Canada. <laughs> yeah, that's like Canada in a nutshell, really. Yeah, a weird mix. Whenever you watch a movie and it feels slightly off somehow, and you don't understand why, it always turns out like, oh, this is Canadian. Okay. Yeah, and I I want to be back in that milieu to make and be part of. Cut rate Canadian films. Speaking of failures, yeah. you know. Yes. There were lots of that. Yeah, it's great. All right. So we've gone full circle, I think, from making fun of Canada to making fun of Canada. That's right. So uh, why don't we draw this episode to a close? Uh, just in conclusion, failures and fuck ups and losers are worth caring about in, in literature as they are worth caring about in all in real life because we're all fuck-ups we're, we're all fuck-ups no one gave us instructions on how to live i mean i guess they did but they weren't very good instructions they're not great we're doing our best or we're really not doing our best <laughs> but we're still worthy of love and that's okay but before we go jr tell us some things you'd like to plug uh nothing really much to plug you know i've been i've been trying to find my voice as a writer over the pandemic especially uh as a critic and as a writer or a nonfiction writer. So I started a, a letterboxed account that I've been taking a little more seriously and imagine taking a letterboxed account seriously. Speaking of failure, 
But uh, mm. I, I just finished a, a 2,500 words piece about uh, 2,500 words about Ghostbusters, actually. So if you're interested in that, which there's got to be one of you, I have that. And I've been writing about the Tomie movies. And, of course, I have my fiction works in progress, which will be coming out fairly soon. This year, for sure. Mm. Well, thank you for coming on the show. And, and we would like to stress that this is the our third attempt at recording this episode uh, because we, we failed the past two times in keeping with the theme of this show. Yeah. Yeah. We're fucking it up. You're, We're fucking up. Yeah. TriCast failed to acknowledge your microphone. And I failed to turn my microphone on in the Windows 10 settings. God damn. <laughs> I figured that out today. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me, Raquel. All right, and thank you all for listening. If you like what you heard, head to patreon.com slash write good and subscribe. Until next time, keep writing good. This has been Write Good with Raquel S. Benedict. Hosted by Raquel S. Benedict and produced by Matt Keeley for KS Media LLC. Theme song by OK Glass. For comments and concerns, please write to us at writegood at kittystasis.com. That is R-I-T-E-G-U-D at kittysteezes.com. If you'd like to support us, please visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash writegood. This has been a Kitty Sneezes production. Kittysneezes.com in color. <laughs> <laughs>